Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hope everybody's doing well today. I want to welcome everybody to the Unimpressed Podcast. And today we have a friend calling in from Illinois. And he used to be in a biker gang and recently wrote a book called The Ride of My Life. I want to welcome Justin the Mooch de Loretto to the show. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me on. So, man, you know, when you think about being in a gang, I don't know. I kind of look at that a little different. You know, it's almost like a tone. And what would you say attracted you to that? initially. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I kind of grew up doing like more traditional street gang stuff outside of, we weren't doing like the illegal stuff for money and stuff like that. But, you know, we, we, we had weekly meetings, we had structure and leadership, we claimed area, you know, tried to keep rivals out of our area. So I kind of had some of that experience going into the motorcycle world, but what brought me into motorcycle clubs, well, first and foremost was my love for motorcycles. You know, I, I fell in love with riding motorcycles. I started traveling the country with guys, spending a lot of time with guys that are, you know, like-minded guys. And that really is what attracted me to it initially. And then I kind of got sucked in. I ended up being in for almost 15 years. So, you know, it was a big chunk of my life. So where were you from originally? Uh, I grew up in Salem, Oregon, and then Portland, Oregon. Portland, Oregon. And then I moved so around quite a bit. You were in, in some type of gang growing up as a kid? or Yeah. So, you know, I came from a very middle class uh, background. I had really good family. Most of my family are teachers, school teachers and sports coaches. And But I have an identical twin brother. And I think, you know, it's kind of in a, a search for identity is the way I would probably look at it now, looking back. And I got into like punk rock and, and that whole music scene. And I really got into the anti-racist scene back in the day. And, and there was a group of like neo-Nazi skinheads in my school and they used to bully me and pick on me and they kept calling me a shark which I didn't know what that was which stands for skinhead against racial prejudice and I didn't even know like anti-racist skinheads were a thing I didn't know anything about it but you know being accused of it I started looking into it and reading a lot of books about it and, and really kind of dove into that culture and it really kind of emulated street gang stuff you know we we were like I said we were a group of guys with, with leadership and we kept the neo-nazi skinheads out of our neighborhood out of our concerts away from our scene you know it was pretty violent street gang for the most part. So I, I was involved in that for like my teens up until my early 20s. And and from that too, I also it brought me into being in a band. I played guitar in a band called The Escaped and we toured the country for about five years, I toured Canada, played, you know, did some warp tours and stuff like that. So I was pretty like already involved in kind of some street level stuff by then. So you had some creativity and if you're, did you ever feel some high sensibilities, you know, creating and, you know, how do you balance that? You know, at the time I was, I was young and naive. I don't think I had much of a, like a, a goal for my future. As soon as high school was done, I had no interest in college at the time. I didn't really know like what I wanted to be. And so I just kind of dove head first into this kind of music scene. And so, you know, at the time I was just doing it. Like it's just, we were trying to, trying to put a record out. We put a, we ended up putting a couple of records out, spent a lot of time on the road. You know, times were a lot cheaper back then. So we could afford to be on tour for a couple of months, come home for a couple of months, be back on the road. We all lived together and shared a house and stuff. So I think at, like prior to reflection, I was just kind of doing it, you know, looking back, it was awesome. You know, it's something that, you know, I could walk into a bar right now and my band's new usually on touch tunes and on Instagram. And, you know, I helped create and write some of those songs. And so, you know, it's a really good feeling now as an adult. But at the time, I think I was just kind of working my way through it. Yeah, because, you know, when I think about being an artist and then thinking about being a, a gang member, ironically, you know, someone that is highly creative, highly sensitive, there's a lot of people like that. 
you know, and I think a lot of times we don't understand what our sensitivities are and we somewhat mask that we, you know, we might turn to drugs or we might turn to something else because we think we need that to balance ourselves. Do you recognize yourself as having very high sensibilities? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the things that kind of guided me into leadership or, or just kind of naturally took place where I got involved in leadership. And yeah, you know, I was, I was always, you know, pretty open about talking about myself and my feelings, talking to my friends, being, you know, one of those guys that really cared for my friends and, and, the, and the brothers. And, and so I think, yeah, that stuff naturally comes out as you get going. And I think, you know, you kind of find your right fit. When did you realize you could play music and write songs? I tried learning how to play the guitar in probably junior high school. And around high school, I was uh, so started kind of jamming around with some other guys. My stepfather played guitar. So he kind of taught me some stuff and gave me a guitar. So I had some guitar lessons early on, but I was, you know, just like I was at the motorcycle club scene and everything. I just jumped head first before I even knew much about it. So I started playing in a band before I even knew very many chords. <laughs> I was just excited to do it. So I started playing with other guys in high school and, and, you know, we were doing like just high school parties and stuff like that. We didn't really start taking it seriously until shortly after high school. That's when we started like trying to put out records and touring. And, you know, this was a time before the internet was really big. So if you wanted people to know of your band, you know, you're putting flyers up on, on telephone poles and you were traveling. You had to play concerts and you had to be, you know, go to LA and New York and all the little small places in between so that people knew who you were. So it was kind of a different era. So we had to work really hard at to be recognized and to get our name out there. Well, you being from Portland, you said, what, Portland, right? You're from Portland, Oregon, for your, that area, you said originally? Yes. Being from that yes. area, I mean, what is your lineage? What's your family, you know, father, grandfather? Yeah, so I, both sides of my family are Italian. My great-grandparents uh, immigrated to New Jersey from Italy. And then my grandparents came from New Jersey to Oregon to be school teachers. They finished college in Oregon and became school teachers, high school school teachers. So I have a very tight-knit Italian family. And, you know, they've always been really supportive of me from day one. I think that's kind of the difference where, you know, people look at the stereotypical gang member and say, oh, yeah, he needed a family. You know, he was missing that family atmosphere. And I actually did not have any of that. I mean, I had an amazing family. They supported me, still support me. You know, we did Sunday Sunday dinners every weekend you know, celebrate all the holidays and birthdays and everything like that. So, I mean, I've been very blessed to have a very supportive family. And what part of New Jersey is the family from? Rahway. Rockaway? Rahway. Rahway. Oh, okay. Well, believe it or not, yeah. we lived in North Caldwell. New Jersey for 12 and a half years and just recently moved down back to Charleston, South Carolina, where I went to school during the pandemic. And my family actually built North Caldwell in 1951. You might know some of the last names, Soprano, Ruffalo, Jenny Antasio. So small world. And wow. I think Art Ruffalo, he built the first section in North Caldwell when he moved the family from Newark in 1951. And that was the house I lived in and rebuilt prior to moving to Charleston, South Carolina. And then in 1957, they built the second part of North Caldwell. And that's actually where they filmed The Sopranos. And uh, David Chase, who created The Sopranos, was from North Caldwell and actually was in, in school around the same time as my dad. So very, very interesting deal. Your family might have knew my family. Who knows? Yeah, that's super cool, man. It's really funny as we age, we find out how small the world is, right? Like we're not too far from knowing somebody that knows someone else and, and the, the overlap there is pretty crazy. Yeah. When the family came to New Jersey, what part of Italy were they from? Comparino and Sicily. So they were mixed between Northern and Southern. So you, you know, potentially you could have been maybe in a family business if you stayed in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, maybe. You know what's funny is I've, I've you know I spent a lot of time doing you know that kind of street level gang stuff, but I've never really been much of the hustler or like the uh, financial part of you know all the all the benefits that people get from gang life or or that type of family stuff. And that's never been a strong suit of mine. So I don't know if it would have worked out too well for me. Well, when you talk about the sensitivities, I interviewed Rita Gigante, and her dad was Vincent the Chin Gigante, who was head of the five crime families in New York. And her sensibilities were very, very similar. She was, she's a medium, she's a psychic. And as she was growing up, she didn't know, you know, being in, you know, with her father being this figure, you know, she didn't know what those sensitivities were until later in life. And I think those, you know, those sensitivities, I think those sensitivities sometimes can take you down the wrong road if you don't really recognize what they were. She didn't know she was a medium. She didn't know she was a psychic, but you have a, a crime family father and then someone who's a healer and medium is kind of an interesting dynamic. Did you ever recognize any anything like that in your life? You know, I think growing up in, in a very caring, you know, like I said, a tight-knit Italian family, especially with school teachers and stuff, I naturally was pretty good at expressing emotions and feelings, reading other people. You know, I've always been kind of a caring person, an empath, empath for sure. So I think that, you know, I, I recognized early on. I mean, now I'm a social worker and a therapist. So I think I probably learned those skills early on without realizing what they were, you know, until upon reflection and being older and stuff like that. But, you know, communication's always been a really strong suit of mine and playing off people's strengths, you know, keeping those around me and, and utilizing them for what their strengths are. I think that helped me a long way in both the worlds I kind of, you know, were in and out of. So interesting. So when you moved into this gang, motorcycle gang, what what were some of the things you experienced that that kind of kind of gave you a life memory where you, maybe I shouldn't do that again or I'm not going to, you know, because I think in life you learn through experience. Was there any major experiences that kind of changed your direction and mindset? Yeah, absolutely. You know, joining early on, you know, like I said, I I was a young kid. I had kind of this reputation as the local tough guy. And so my, my first, you know, stuff in that motorcycle club world was just trying to prove myself. I was that young kid. I was naive and I thought I needed to show everyone that, you know, I was the tough guy. I was an asset to the club. So I came off pretty strong, I'm sure, and was really trying to make a name for myself. You know, over the years, as I settled into the positions and into leadership, I tried to actually switch that and use it for a positive. So when I first started joining motorcycle clubs or coming around motorcycle clubs, all the old school guys, they would tell you, hey, you know, if, if you want to join this club, you're going to lose everything. You know, it's a pretty much that old death or jail added. And it got to the point where I was like, hey, I'm, why would I want to bring people into this club and call them my brother if it was going to be a negative impact on their life? Like, I don't want to see you join and lose your life or lose your job. So I actually ended up using a leadership position to try and help people. I wanted people to say, you know, when I joined the Mongols, my life got better. Not everything fell apart when I joined the Mongols. So, you know, over the years, I kind of fell into the you know leadership position where I can have an influence on people. And we cre created some rules like methamphetamine wasn't allowed in the regions I was in, uh, in charge of. Everyone had to have full-time jobs because if one guy gets busted selling drugs and it's a bad look for everybody, everyone had to work out a minimum three times a week, stay physically fit. And then as being a, a therapist and mental health counselor, you know, my communication skills were really well. So getting the brothers to communicate, and, you know, talk more and, and trying to get everyone on the same page. So really, I think I kind of took kind of something that had a pretty negative connotations to it. And I tried to make it as positive as I could, you know, later on in, in, in my career, my club career. What were some of the 
craziest things that happen. Well, so the first year I joined, you know, I started the first chapter of the Mongols in Oregon and the established clubs in Oregon didn't want us there. I'd been visited by the FBI that said there was a contract on my life. And, you know, before that had happened, I only thought that stuff happened in movies. So it was early on. I didn't take it too serious. You know, looking back, it was probably a pretty serious deal. So, you know, here we were five or six guys in our 20s, you know, for lack of a better term, we're at war with all these other local clubs that have been established in the state since the 50s and 60s. And so we had that on our plate at the same time. Nationally, the Mongols were having some issues with the major Southern California organization outside of the biker world, which we're seeing a lot of people getting killed. And then I had been arrested about six months after being in the club. I had, was following some police officers that were trespassing my property. I didn't know there were cops. And because I chased them, I got charged with attempted kidnapping and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. So I fought that case and then I beat it. And then shortly after that, there was a, a large uh, undercover investigation going on called Operation Black Rain, where they had like three or four full, full, you know, full ATF agents that were informed or undercover in the Mongols and, you know, arrested hundreds of people. And so that first year in the club was crazy, man. I, you know, I'd been arrested. I'd seen all my friends getting busted from this major or, you know, this major bust. And then, you know, we're fighting for our lives. I'm seeing people get killed. So, I mean, it was, it, it got pretty serious really quick. So when you lay your head down at night, how did that feel? Could you get sleep at night? Man, you know, early on, it was a pretty stressful time. I'm, you know, I was 25, 26 years old. I was the president of this new chapter of the Mongols. I really didn't know much about that world. I wanted to be active and be seen because I didn't, wanted to show the clubs they weren't going to push us around. But anytime we went out, you know, we were risking getting shot off our bikes and, you know, pretty crazy stuff. So in leadership, you have to have that face of, you know, we're, we're together, we're good, we're not scared. But, in, you know, behind closed doors, you really, it all kind of sinks in. I think, though, at the time, being young and kind of naive, you don't really reflect on that stuff for as serious as it is until later. Because if you do, you know, you take it pretty serious and then you can start getting scared and you start making the wrong decision. So I don't think I reflected a lot on it at the time. I just tried my best to get through it. Interesting. So what was the purpose of these motorcycle gangs? Like, you know, to start a chapter and to do it, what was the sole purpose? Well, I mean, initially the whole goal is, you know, about motorcycles or it should be, you know, there's a whole generation of guys that liked the brotherhood of riding a motorcycle, kind of living out of society's rules. You know, the guys just followed their own rules. They didn't, you know, that don't deal with law enforcement. You know, early in the early years, the guys didn't have jobs. They just spent the time. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We keep a lot of emotions bundled up inside in life, and sometimes we got to talk to people. I witnessed the benefits with my own two eyes. I have a close friend that was struggling with depression and felt like she had no one she could consistently talk to because of her busy schedule. She was matched with a therapist through BetterHelp. After several months of sessions, I've seen a tremendous change in her personality and in her life. 
If you're needing therapy and, and want to get some of those things off your chest, it's entirely online and designed to conveniently work around your schedule and empower you to be the best version of yourself. Just fill out a questionnaire and they will align you with the right therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com unimpressed today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash unimpressed. I'm traveling around, I'm partying, but really by the time I joined, you know, the big part was just, you know, we're riding around with like-minded people, a lot of great parties, a lot of road trips. So it kind of just gave me a purpose, something to do. So, you know, I always had an agenda. I was, you know, had to ride to Colorado or Los Angeles or, you know, we were always on our bikes and, and had stuff going. So initially it was just pretty positive. Obviously there's a lot of negative connotations, you know, like said, or like you've been saying, you know, it's often labeled a gang. And I think that's kind of debatable if it's considered a gang or not. But over the years, different clubs and different members have done pretty illegal things. And then, you know, that's the media knows and that's what people understand about it. But in reality, at least from my perspective, it wasn't a criminal or organization. It wasn't really a gang vibe. You know, we did have some violent altercations with other clubs, but a lot of that was personal. You know, once you've been in long enough and you've been tight with someone and they get killed by another club, then you hold hold that beef too. So it's kind of that cycle of violence, you know, once you're in it. Once you're in the game, once you once you commit to that. So how long you, were, you said you were in 15 years? When did you decide you needed to get out? Just two years ago in 2021. So when I first moved, to, I moved to Illinois in 2017 and I initially had moved to kind of step away from the club, maybe think about retiring. Yeah, I just finished graduate school. I got my master's degree in social work. I was starting to really, my whole emphasis was, you know, in this new career and, and I'd been doing club stuff by, for over 10 years at this point. And so, and as I was really getting into jujitsu and just kind of some other positive things and the culture of motorcycle clubs was kind of changing and, and I was I was just pretty burnt out. At the time I oversaw all the Mongol chapters out of the country and then I oversaw the Northwest region and then eventually the Midwest. And so I had a lot on my plate. I stayed really active with the club and really busy and I, I think I was getting really burnt out. And so I initially had moved out to Illinois to kind of just, there was no Mongols in the area at the time. I was going to step down and just, you know, I was still going to be a member, but I wasn't going to have to be super active. And I was really trying to move on with life. But I just, I don't know if I wasn't ready or if the timing was rough. But when I moved out here, there was a group of guys in this area that I moved to, St. Louis area that were wanting to be Mongols. And I ended up starting a chapter there. When I moved to out here, there was one small chapter in Missouri. And after, by the time I retired officially, we had four chapters in Missouri, two in Illinois, three in Indiana. So I, mean, I did a lot of growth and I worked pretty hard on the club once I moved out here, which like I said, wasn't my initial goal. So when things kind of, it was 2017, so around 2021, I was, I was back to being burnt out. Politics of the club were changing a lot. The national leadership had changed a lot. One of my close friends that had joined the club in the area was, was murdered. And there was just a lot on my plate that made me really consider, is this something that I still believe in? You know, every day I put that patch on, I was risking death or jail, essentially. And, and it, when it was something I believed in, that was a risk I was willing to take. And when I no longer felt supported and, and my life was different and these weren't the types of things I wanted to be involved in, um, it got harder and harder to put that patch on. Interesting. Well, you look like an MMA fighter. Yeah, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. <laughs> You look like you could go a little bit. Yeah, I grew up wrestling and then uh, I did a little bit of boxing in my early, like early 20s. And then I really didn't do a lot of sports, you know, because I'm so active in club stuff. And when I started getting into working out quite a bit and then from there I got into jujitsu and I've been doing jujitsu for six years. Huh. Well, I can kind of can relate to getting burnt out because I think when you deal with extreme personalities, you know, you do that over and over and over. Uh, you know, I really think that extreme personalities can weigh on someone that has high sensibilities. Do you think that's what got to you, just kind of mentally exhausted you? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, like I said, I, I, I was in charge of a lot of areas. So, you know, any chapters that were having issues or internal conflicts, they would have to come to me to help mediate. And so there was just a lot on my plate that, you know, like was a lot of things I wasn't into anymore, you know? And, and so dealing with that type of drama, you know, we, when we started in Chicago, the major club here, the outlaws said that we are in Illinois, they said we couldn't be here. So we were back to beefing with these other motorcycle clubs and, and, you know, the people were getting killed. And when people get killed because of decisions that you've made or didn't make, you know, that, that hits you pretty hard. It's pretty heavy. Like when you're in, people don't understand and, you know, a lot of people want to be in leadership or say they're a leader, but when you're actually doing it, you know, you got to really understand the consequences of choices you make and, and it has real life implications on people. So, you know, that was really draining to me once it really hit me that, you know, some choices I made possibly led to somebody's death, you know, a close friends. The burnout was definitely real, you know, and it just, you're right, it became exhausting. And especially when, you know, you're worried about your safety. You know, this was the second time I got visited by the, uh, this time was local law enforcement about a contract on my life because the local club didn't want us here. So, you're, you know, you're everywhere you go, you're on high security, high alert. So there's that stress. There's the stress of just the internal drama and then club politics in general. Right around this time, our national president had been kicked out of the club and a lot of people were jockeying for positions and there was a pretty big power struggle. And I'm sure, you know, you've seen that from crime families to anywhere that when that happens, it's never good. And so there was just so much stress and drama going on that it was definitely very burnt out. So the ride of my life, the book, what do you hope to accomplish with your story? You know, so that's a good question. <laughs> I really hope to just share my story with, with other people, you know, people like yourself that can get a glimpse into what motorcycle clubs are, are about or what that lifestyle is like, but also for people in that club life that are wanting to step away, make a better life for themselves. You know, like I said, I end up becoming a social worker and a mental health therapist. I work with teens that are on parole or probation and try and help, you know, keep kids out of the juvenile justice system. So it's kind of more of a positive story, right? About redemption and, you know, staying true to who you are as a person and and really trying to make those those positive changes. And, and even in the club life, you know, I talked about it in the book, like I brought up earlier, if you're in a position of leadership or a position of control and, and you have people around you you care about, you know, it's your it's your opportunity and it's your chance to really try and help better these people around you, like being a positive brother or a positive friend, be that positive role model. So I really hope it's just kind of an empowering to others to try and look after those they care about and just be the best version of themselves that they can be. When you approach some of these kids to talk to them and they're, they have issues or in juvenile, or whatever it is. What's your approach? Well, I think my appearance helps a lot right out the gate, right? I go and meet with these teenagers. I think they're used to dealing with, you know, the traditional therapist or what you would think of a traditional therapist. A big rule in therapy is I don't share my past, right? It has nothing to do with me. It's about the client. But you can look at me and read that I've probably been through some stuff. I probably understand what you're going through. There's a lot of empathy there. But I'm also not going to put up with your shit, right? Like uh, you're not going to BS me. And so I think there's a lot at play that where the youth can really, you know, align with me and, and we can get that, build that therapeutic rapport pretty early on because I know I'm not BSing them. Now, do you have wife, kids, family? I do have a wife and we've got three rescue dogs, no kids for us, but I have an identical twin brother and I have a niece and nephew. And then I have a, my little brother died when we, when he was 11. And so my parents had another child a few years later. So I have a young sister. She just turned uh, 19. That's in college. So I feel like I kind of have kids, but I get to give them back. <laughs> nice. And how'd you meet your wife? She was actually a bartender at one of the bars that we rode into as a club one time. And um, I was going through a breakup. So I was just single for about a year and just openly dating. And I guess she sent me a friend's request on Facebook after seeing me at the bar. And I didn't, honestly didn't remember it. And several months later, she liked a photo. And I was like, well, who's this hot chick like in my photo? And I invited her out and we started hanging out. And then we clicked really, really early on. And it was one of those things where I realized why the other relationships in my life didn't work out once I found the right one. You know, like it, it really clicked to me what this is how relationships are supposed to 
to be, you know, being a therapist, we have excellent communication. She's about 10 years younger than me. So she kind of keeps me young. She's a lot more outgoing than me and, you know, pretty more, a lot more active, but we share a lot of the same stuff. We're both into rescuing animals. We're both into fitness. She works out often. So she helps keep me motivated to go to the gym. So it's been a really good partnership outside of a really good friendship. Awesome. So if we want to find the book, Ride of My Life, and you can hold that book up if you want to show the book and tell us where we get the book. So it's available from all major retailers. I think the easiest is probably Amazon or Barnes and Noble. We've been trying to push most of them through Amazon right now because they keep track of like the rankings and the more that they sell through Amazon, the more Amazon helps promote it. So Amazon's been the best way. They've got hardback, paperback, and the digital version. I'm going to go into the studio pretty soon and start recording the audiobook, but I think I heard that that takes a while, so I wouldn't hold my breath that that's going to be out soon, but we are working on the audiobook for it too. And what do you think the best story is in the book? Man, I think the overall kind of redemption of it towards the end, you know, early on, it's talking about, you know, my life and my, my childhood and, and touring in the band. It kind of jumps around a little bit. And that's been some positive and some negative feedback about that. But when you read the book, I want people that know me to hear my voice. I want them to say, this is, I'm, I'm a natural storyteller. You know, when we're at parties and hanging out, I'm usually the guy telling jokes and telling stories. And so I really wanted this book to convey, this was me sitting down, sharing a story. So, you know, it jumps around a little bit. There's a lot of humor in it, laughing, but then a lot of serious stuff, you know, emotions and feelings. And, and, you know, stuff that I don't think people think that bikers talk about. And my biggest takeaway to it is, is the last couple chapters where I really decide that club culture has changed, club life has changed, and it would have been really selfish of me to try and hang on to something that was no longer there. And I chose to move on. And since I've moved on, it's really bettered my life. It's bettered my wife's life, you know, my family. It's kept me out of danger. You know, I'm not worried about law enforcement and, you know, other clubs. And so it's been, you know, kind of a big weight off my shoulders. And I think, you know, I kind of wrap it up by saying I don't regret any of my time in that club life because it made me who I am today. I'm not proud of some of the things I've done over the years between gang life and club life. And, you know, we could kind of take that for what it's worth. But as I grew as an adult and as a human and my empathy got, you know, stronger and world experience and everything else, I think I really learned who I am as a person. And I think a lot of these stories and stuff I went through really shaped me. And so there's not a lot I would change either. Like I had a good time doing it, but it was time to leave. Well, I think it comes down to respect and value. I don't think a lot of people today give themselves any value. They don't respect a, a brand or authority or, you know, I don't know what it is. It seems like there's just there's not much respect for for life in general. Unfortunately, I think that deteriorates, you know, a lot of things, you know, that could be foundational yeah, think, or I used to be foundational. Image, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think generationally back in the day, you know, people had a lot of pride in their work or their family or their friend group, something they belonged to. There was a lot of pride in that. And you put a lot of hard work into that and, and you wanted it to reflect, you know, in who you are as a person. And I think generationally now, like you said, I think there's, you know, a lot of people don't respect traditions and values that we used to. And I also also think, you know, I don't know if it's social media or what, but people are more concerned with image. So, you know, in, in my era in that club world and, and gang stuff too, you know, the people that became leaders was because they were good at the job where now people want to be leaders to say I'm a leader. They want the title, not necessarily the work that goes with it. And so I think that inherently changed, you know, club life and a lot of other things is, you know, people no longer have that respect for the position or for authority or for the rule, you know, or, or for the tradition of why we were doing these things. And it kind of, people have gotten a lot more selfish and they care about how is it going to affect me, not how is it going to affect everybody. And I think that really kind of undermined the brotherhood of all that. Well, unfortunately, and this is something I've been on is, is that, uh, you know, they can thank technology for that because I think 
based on what we take in on a daily basis. And we can take in a lot of information very quickly without any, you know, work doing it. I think that devalues society in a way, unfortunately. And if you're listening to this, I think you should really think about that. Because I think if you strive for something that's foundational, it gives you more pride. It gives you more respect. And I think it enriches your life more. But people are going the opposite direction. So maybe we'll get back to that one day. Yeah, I think there's a strong sense of pride in anything you've had to work hard for. Right. Like you said, if, if, if it took you a while to build something or, or to learn something, you're very invested in it. Then, you know, there's a lot of pride that comes with that. And then you're kind of bought into it. But if it's something that you can just look up really quick or, you, you know, you hear some real quick slips and you think you're an expert, you're not really that bought into it. And then I think that kind of, you know, waters down your stance and, and you know, like, again, every, the way people what they stand for and, and what they believe in. Well, I think it's been a good conversation. I hope hopefully people can learn something from this conversation. I mean, I, I think things are somewhat linear, no matter what you do in life. If you give things respect, if you think about foundation, you know, there's that that level and process and pretty much everything. I think we got to get back to that. And it's very, very interesting. And hopefully, like I said, people can learn something from this. And Justin, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. And um, I don't know if there's anything yeah, else so that we me. didn't touch on that you want to speak about? So, you know, as being a therapist and, and trying to, you know, have that positive mindset, I do, you know, I have a social media, Instagram, it's OG underscore underscore Mooch. I answer anyone that messages me. Obviously, I've got to set some boundaries, but you know, if anyone reaches out or needs a word of encouragement or help, just hit me up on social media. I'm happy to help. If you're going through something similar that I went through and you need, you know, some advice, hit me up. I'm always happy to help. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool, man. Well, Justin, the Mooch de Loretto, appreciate you coming on the show and check out his book, The Ride of My Life. And my name's John Edmonds Cosma, the CEO of Bang Productions. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.